Right, welcome to Solid 6051. I've uh, made a huge change in the layout and uh, presentation of the podcast as you will see it in the podcatchers and iTunes. It's now just Solid 60 and their number. I don't include episode, I don't include any kind of fancy apostrophes. We're streamlining that shit, yo. It's 2019, I'm now 40, we've got to get modernised, we've got to update. It's all about brevity. So that's been pretty exciting new change to get used to i hope you can all uh, stay on board and it doesn't ruffle your feathers too much and love any feedback that you might have so here we go i am now sitting on my couch as per usual but it is sunday morning it's a little weird this weekend because it's a long one we've got the friday hat off spent that again as usual with the smaller kid and it was a lot of fun and have the sunday now it's the 21st of April. Tomorrow will be at the Easter show, hopefully, if all things go to plan. And then back to work on Tuesday, which I managed to wrangle out of my boss from in the new job. Didn't go quite to plan, but I'll address that in a second. Then we'll have Wednesday off, because I booked that ahead of time to go see the Avengers. It's all set up. Can't wait for that. Then 25th apparently is public holiday, because it's Anzac Day. And then you've got Friday, possibly back to work. And then the Saturday and Sunday are Iron Fest, which I'm a bit nervous about. I don't really have anything to wear as per usual. I think it'll be the same situation as last year, just my very average fallout gear and then the Star Trek jacket and so on. I can't really do much better. I've got a little bit of money in the bank now, but I don't want to just throw it out. So I'm just going to have to stick to the usual wardrobe for one more year. And then hopefully by next year, I can be just as involved and spice things up a bit. Hopefully things have... uh, gone better and I've got a more secure employment because as I was saying it didn't go as smoothly as I liked it's a tough job the second day they left me by myself with a smaller truck because the Hiab issue really reared its ugly head because uh, they he assumed he would have someone that knew how to use it and didn't so therefore I couldn't be trained on on the Monday I started I drove around in the larger truck with a offsider who has been around for a few years but pretty much just done installing and warehouse stuff um, like I think he drives a forklift at most but no trucks so he had no idea how to use the little crane on the back as they call the hyab and that was it we just had to go and pick everything up by hand and it was brutal and I think I might have expressed that too much like how sore I was and how I was like why are they putting everything all over the place there was one site where we had like four different piles of crap to pick up and we kept getting really stuck in mud and it was just really just scrappy loose all over the place you're picking up these three four meter long metal poles trying to pick up maybe three four at a time to drag them back to the truck then you got to f- make that somehow work with all the other bits and bobs and pieces from all over the place as well like these really like awkwardly shaped l style posts and joining bits of metal like i'd be filling a milk crate with that trying to lift it all the way up above my head to toss it into these giant metal boxes that we have so that was fun and I'm like oh man this is going to be tough but I'll just uh, grip my teeth. Got back to the boss that I probably wasn't as excited and happy doing it as I should be I think would have been part of it because he hasn't seen me work a lot himself. I got back to the warehouse on the Wednesday and he's just like oh, I don't feel like you're really you know cut out for this you're more of an office worker which would be great. Definitely be happy in an office if I had anything on my resume that would get me a job in an office. So that's the only problem there, at least anything beyond like basic data entry, which, yeah, it doesn't pay half as much as 
this kind of work. So I uh, pleaded my case and he said, yeah, okay, you can come back on Tuesday because he was just going to say, look, don't worry about it. I'll call you and let you know what's going on, which was clearly like a brush off of just, you know, don't bother. And I was like, hang on, this is a permanent job, right? In my mind, because that was part of the reason why I started doing this one over the other option. I'm still going to get paid holiday pay if I stick around at least for another week or two. Because I don't, honestly don't know if it's I, what I want to do. Like, it's so scrappy and so, like, even though they put me with a driver that knew how to use a hire, from what he showed me, it was still pretty sketchy. You're in some spots where it's really, really tight and you've got to push it all, like, to the edge of where you can use it and drag stuff out sometimes from behind things. There's lots of ways it can go wrong. So that's that's a little stressful. And the only problem is... The guy I'm with at the moment doesn't help with showing my work ethic because, and I'll be back with him next week, basically he tries to drag out the day as long as possible so he can get back just in time to knock off and go home. He's an agency guy, so he doesn't want to do any extra stuff in the warehouse, whereas when I'm by myself, I'll get back as soon as I can and help pack things up and all that sort of thing. So, And that's what I told the boss, and I said I didn't want to have a long weekend worrying about whether I had a job or not. So he said, all right, yeah, we'll see how you go. So I don't know how I'm going to impress him, given that he said he wouldn't be there next week. So it's going to be all sort of very stressful, I'll put it that way. But I'll do the best I can, that's all I can do, and fingers crossed. Otherwise, hopefully, if it doesn't work out, which I've got a gut feeling that, yeah, because that's what he said, based on my gut, and that's what I go off. Uh, I don't know if you're the right fit and all this sort of thing. And it it was a bit depressing after so soon. Uh, in the job. Well, I thought it was a little unfair and, you know, I wouldn't have minded more of a chance, but which I think he sort of given me. I still feel like I'm up against it. So I don't know. All I can do is, again, try my best, not come off as like, oh, I'm too good for this place or whatever attitude I seem to be. I'm not verbally doing that. I'm not, there must be something in my body language. So I've got to try to monitor that and just do my best. But yeah, it's a little less optimal than I'd like. But I'm just going to go with it. We're not here to talk all about that. How to just enjoy the long weekend. Look forward to the Avengers and seeing my son. And then going up on the weekend with Jaden from Banana Split. And a few other friends and having a good time in Lithgow. Till then I've, I've been kind of enjoying the time off that I've had. I watched the final episode of the current season of Better Call Saul. So I might talk a little bit about that. I finished up Narcos Mexico and a few other shows so it's been good i've still got to get through the umbrella academy that's going to be a mission apparently a second season was ordered so hopefully it picks up a little with pacing and things like that but i did tease a few articles last week so i might as well get into those one of them was something about click businesses okay that's the one in front of me so let's go with that and then there's the mute thing here there it is okay and then of course the today i learned stuff and then a little bit of trivia so that should get us through to lunch and then I'll see what I want to do. Maybe I'll actually go to the gym today and have a shower there because I've got everything and I might as well use it. And I've got my fancy bag, which I still haven't used like a week later. So wish me luck. But first, a look at the click business. When Facebook introduced the like button in 2009, no one could have predicted the profound impact it would have. And by the way, this is written by Sean Manteso, a journalist for ABC News. Every minute, Facebook's 2.3 billion users generate 4 million likes. Now, likes, followers, and views can lead to power, money, and influence. But Facebook metrics can be bought by anyone with a simple click. In clandestine businesses known as click farms, 
spread out across the world, fake profiles, likes, shares and views are being manufactured and sold onto social media platforms to influencers, businesses and even politicians. How do click farms work and how do they benefit those who pay? Johan Lindquist, an anthropologist at the University of Stockholm, took an interest in click farming when his research indicated an increasing number of fake followers on politicians' social media accounts. Dr. Lindquist has now conducted extensive research on those operations in Indonesia. In Indonesia, there's a digital competence, but not a lot of work opportunities. So I started to look around, and it was clear that there were a lot of people selling engagement. Depending on who you ask, click farms are either fraudulent online businesses running a sophisticated scam or a legitimate form of income for people seeking to exploit the digital economy. Dr. Lindquist said that some farms rely on software to generate engagement through bots, while others employ human labor to manually engage with accounts in rooms, storing rows and rows of hundreds of devices. Some businesses actually buy the fake engagement and proceed to sell that onto clients. And some of them are very large, sophisticated operations. Imagine a room with a group of 20-year-old men around the computers smoking and drinking. We can imagine this kind of space not only in Indonesia but in other places, perhaps in Melbourne or in Bangkok. Dr. Lindquist added that while the best click farms can make up to 70 grand a month, most struggle. There's a lot of competition and it's cutthroat. A quick Google search yields dozens of websites and services offering to sell likes, views and friends for as little as a few dollars. Social media influencers, businesses and even politicians have been caught in accusations of paying for likes and followers. The US State Department admitted in 2013 that it had paid more than $600,000 US for fake Facebook followers and likes in an attempt to expand its social media presence. But alarmingly, with crucial elections looming across Asia in coming months, many politicians appear to have unusually high numbers of fake followers. According to the online Twitter analysis tool SparkToro, a number of politicians appear inundated with low-quality followers, strong indication that they are fake. SparkToro defines fake followers as accounts that are unreachable and will not see the accounts' tweets, either because they're spam bots, propaganda, or because they're no longer active on Twitter. It revealed Indonesia's president, Yoko Widodo, had more than 5 million low-quality followers on Twitter. In other words, 50% of his follower base could be fabricated. Thailand's Prime Minister Prayut Chan-ocha returns a similar score, while India's leader Narendra Modi and his opponent Rahul Gandhi both appear to have more than 55% low-quality followings. Even here in Australia, SparkToro shows 60% of opposition leaders Bill Shorten's Twitter followers to be of low quality, while Prime Minister Scott Morrison's are roughly 30% low quality. However, it should be noted that the ABC is not suggesting these politicians have paid for the followers. In addition, SparkToro and digital and analytical tools like it do not provide definitive analysis. In a statement, the Prime Minister's office denied Mr Morrison had ever used a third party to obtain more followers. Nonetheless, journalist Brooke Binkowski, the editor of truthorfiction.com and former editor of fact-finding website Snopes.com, maintained some politicians around the world are definitely buying engagement. I think politicians pay for fake followers because that gives their messaging a boost, she said. They probably tell themselves it's no different to political advertising. Disinformation and propaganda are extremely lucrative. She added that while the impact of fake engagement is difficult to measure, the scale is alarming. Despite some efforts at purging fake profiles, Dr. Linquist says Facebook, Twitter and Instagram are ultimately unlikely to push back too hard. 
Facebook and Instagram and other social media platforms actually depend on these click farmers because they depend on the traffic. The traffic generates profit and the click farmers generate traffic. Ms. Binkowski agrees. The business models of social platforms rely on engagement. I find it pretty detestable because they could both make plenty of money and actually do the ethical thing, she said. In a statement issued to the ABC, a Facebook Australia spokesman said, We take authenticity very seriously. We have a strong incentive to aggressively go after the bad actors behind fake likes. Twitter also issued a statement that they took the issue very seriously and had strengthened their guidelines and management of spam accounts. But with 1.6 billion voters expected to enter the polls across Asia this year, just how much sway, if any at all, fake engagement will have is unclear. Nonetheless, it presents a new frontier for digital regulators, according to Ms. Binkowski, a threat to democracy. The nuance to this is that disinformation, propaganda, fake news, it's not just an inconvenience. It's a way to manipulate public opinion. It's being used as an extremely cheap and extremely effective way of manipulating entire countries. And that's where it ends. Pretty scary stuff, how easy it is to buy votes and influence and that sort of thing. It's almost tempting, actually, because I've only got about 7,000 likes on my Facebook page, which took a long time to get to. I think we're up at almost six years now running that. And uh, it did spike. It did finally jump a little bit from the 5,000 about a year ago. But uh, if I could just spend a small amount of money, I don't know what kind of money they're talking about. But if it was only less than $100 to get a few thousand more, that would be tempting. But I do like that most of the followers do seem legit. There's a lot of engagement on the platform whenever I post a meme, which is fairly often lately. It gets, they seem to get the most interactive back and forth with the audience. I can post links to this podcast and the other podcast. I can post links to articles that I've written. Pretty much just tumbleweeds when that happens. If I post a clever or amusing meme, it's like 4,000 shares and 200 comments and all that sort of thing. So it kind of incentivizes short quick funny content unfortunately so as much as i'd love to have five page essays on the state of cosplay and all that it just doesn't seem to get the traction that i'd like anyway while i'm on the abc website maybe i can just go quickly over the current justin even though by the time you hear this it will not be justin at all It'll be something fun to talk about like 18 year old that fell off a cliff at bondi and suffered spinal injuries that's fun how about this please are throwing the book at migrant t- children, teaching them it's a crime not to read. West Australian police officers are ditching their tasers and handcuffs to take on the unlikely task of teaching immigrant children how to read in an effort to break down cultural barriers. Okay, that's actually kind of nice. Good on them. I thought they were literally throwing books at kids. Nothing would surprise me anymore with the way we deal with immigrants. A new range of thanks, Brenton. Jesus. I don't know if you can hear that, but I don't know why people need to do that. It's like this weird, what do you call it, clearing your throat, but your entire, like every part of you cleared at once. But yes, sushi flavoured chocolate. A new range of flavours is set to contest traditional favourites. I think I can skip that. I'm happy with uh, the chocolate that we have, thanks. Unless you're adding orange or something else sweet to it. I don't think you need to go to sushi. We can draw a line just before that. This would be interesting. Gaslighting is a form of domestic violence and children can be victims too. If reality TV show Married at First Sight, God, don't get me started, taught us anything, it's what gaslighting could look like. Take Sam saying to Elizabeth things like, why are you so angry? You need to calm down and you've lost your mind when she wants to know why he's ignored her calls for a week. A 
It's classic gaslighting, says Stephanie Sarkis, a US therapist, authored a book on the topic. And it can be responsible for more than high drama TV. Sarkis says it's emotional abuse that can develop into physical abuse. And because gaslighters are so good at manipulating, anyone can be the victim, even children. She says parents can gaslight too, creating instability and confusion at home. It describes a series of manipulative behaviours and takes its name from Patrick Hamilton's 1938 play Gaslight, later adapted into a film starring Ingrid Bergman. See, I'm going to have to read that book. I have read one of his books pretty much because I just saw my own name on the cover. And I was like, wow, this is blowing my mind. It wasn't a very good book. I can't remember what it was called. I was in London at the time. So this is nearly 20 years ago. Didn't leave a great impression. He wasn't David Foster Wallace or anyone like that or Douglas Adams, but it was a middle of the century morality play. Hopefully gaslighting is better. I'm enough to find that somewhere. Maybe there's an audio book I can listen to. That's the other thing with this job because I haven't been by myself much. I'm, I've had to cut back on the podcasting, but or at least the listening. So I hope I can get my shit together, show that I'm good at it, and then I can get back to listening. In the book Gaslighting, a husband slowly manipulates his wife into thinking she's becoming insane. The term has seen a huge surge in popularity over the past few years. So what's a gaslighter out to achieve? The goal is to make you question your reality and become more dependent on the gaslighter for your well-being. A gaslighter wants to make sure that you don't make any moves without their okay first and you give all your attention to them. It's about power and control. By the way, this is written by Anna Kelsey Sugg and Beck Zajak. Someone correct me on that pronunciation at some point. For Life Matters. That's another arm of the ABC. What to watch out for. Dr. Sarkis says there are some clear red flags when it comes to gaslighting behavior. A gaslighting partner might hide your belongings and then tell you you're irresponsible for losing them. Well, that's pretty fucked up. Like I've almost, hearing about this term in the last few years, had to check myself, sort of go, hmm, have I gaslighted someone? Because I know I've had some pretty out there drama at home with various partners and I might have said things like, look, you're being too emotional about this and classic verbal sparring you hear uh, when arguments go on and I'm always like the calm one and I'm trying, yeah, it can come across like gaslighting, so... I've certainly never done that. They might cheat and accuse you of cheating despite no evidence to suggest it. So I wouldn't have the balls to do that. They can isolate you from those closest to you. So they have you all to themselves. So I wouldn't knowingly do that from those closest to you. Yeah, I wouldn't separate someone from their friends. I've never said, hey, you shouldn't see this person or that person. That's crazy talk. Particularly they go after people who are near and dear to you. They might say other people think you're crazy, pitting people against you, saying that a relative said something that they really didn't say that was derogatory towards you. Well, that's just horrible. If it's very difficult to express criticisms or discuss with a partner what's not working well in a relationship, that's another red flag. If you say, I'd really like to talk to you about something, the person will disappear on you. Or they'll change the subject. They'll do anything they can to not talk about their own failings. They don't feel like they have any failings. Gaslighting as a parent and a friend. This is what interests me, like gaslighting's been fairly well covered in terms of relationships between lovers, but not so much in any other area. So this, I'm kind of like, I better not do this with any of my children. I want to be able to self-monitor that. Dr. Sarkis says this can begin 
when a child begins to develop an independent spirit or just starts to say no to things because you do have to get them to do stuff like you basically have to what's the difference between gaslighting at this point and just being in charge and telling them what to do so let's find out this is when a gaslighter really starts letting out their anger gaslighter parents tend to have a golden child and a scapegoat child and those roles reverse at will so you'll either be the child that can do no wrong or the child that can do no right and the next day you're the exact opposite it gets extremely confusing to kids and there's no stability gaslighting can also manifest in friendships a person who is pathologically envious of a friend for example might try to sabotage your relationship with your partner or spouse. They may also try to pit your children, neighbours and other friends against you. Okay, I was a little worried that I might be unconsciously a gaslighter, but from all the stuff I'm seeing so far, definitely not. Because none of this, this is all too like consciously being a dick. The best thing you can do is just go. If you've identified a toxic gaslighter, Dr. Saka says there are some swift measures you should take. First, if you're concerned for your safety, Contact your local resources and domestic violence resources to make sure that your safety is kept to number one. If you're in a relationship with a gaslighter, you don't have children, the best thing you can do is just go. Next, just make sure they don't have access to you. She recommends blocking the phone numbers and emails and telling your friends and family not to pass on any messages from the gaslighter. She says the gaslighter might try a method called hoovering, trying to get back their partner through any means necessary because they need this attention and when they don't have that they will seek it out in pathological means if you have children with a gaslighter it's more complicated she recommends creating a detailed parenting plan that establishes boundaries and includes details such as where and when to exchange children and what will happen if the other person doesn't show up you need to have that written out very clearly in informing new relationships dr Saka says we shouldn't need to keep our guards up but that is a good idea to stay alert to red flags we need to listen to our intuition she says we all have a different level of when something feels not right, and I think we really need to listen to that. Okay, so that's fairly broad. The thing I got with doing it to your children is basically if you've got more than one and you start playing them off against each other, which should be a pretty shitty thing to do, so I don't have to worry too much about anything nuanced. No, just be consistent. I guess that's what I'm going to take from that and not be a dick. And then we'll move on to the mute article. Finally, Vultures, going to get its piece by Kevin Lincoln. Thank you, Kevin where we at last october this is say written in february 2018 so last october they mean 2017 netflix announced it was going to release 80 movies the announcement was met with shock and skepticism but mostly confusion the big six studios put out 94 films in 2017 collectively and netflix was going to do 80 by itself but the picture began to clear up when these movies started to appear, as IndieWire's David Ehrlich put out in a D-plus review of one of them, the Adam Divine Vehicle, when we first met. The crux of their strategy, the streaming giants ace in the hole, couldn't be clearer. They're just going to release the movies that nobody else would. Ehrlich used that brush to tar a number of titles, including The Cloverfield Paradox, as well as presumably Irreplaceable You, which Emily Yoshida called a half-baked tragic love story so desperately engineered to tear-jerk that it ceases to resemble anything human and the widely maligned Bright. But he also held it up as a potential virtue when it comes to one of the companies releases this year, Mute, from Duncan Jones, which landed on Netflix today. Uh, so it's been out for a while, and I only caught it a couple of weeks ago. It was interesting. I wouldn't say it was something you could rave about to friends and tell them they have to watch it. It's something you might tentatively push across the table. If you know your friends really, really into genre cyberpunk 
films and you're like okay with reservations maybe watch this if you really like Paul Rudd and you want to see him doing something completely different yeah Jones is best known for two things one writing and directing the beguiling sci-fi through the moon so yeah you might be a Jones uh, tragic and you just need to watch everything he's done in which Sam Rockwell essentially serves as the only actor and two being the son of David Bowie but as so often happens in the movie industry Moon was as much a false start as it was a promising debut the overachieving Jake Gyllenhaal or sorry Gyllenhaal time twister source code was well regarded but it didn't leave the same kind of impression that Moon did and with his third movie Warcraft Jones made the jump into blockbuster filmmaking at the exact time that so many ill-advised IP adaptions like Warcraft were cratering at the box office poorly reviewed and underperforming Warcraft left Jones somewhere between an indie cult favourite and a big budget washout, meaning his next film would do a great deal to clarify the perception of him as a director. I thought it made a lot of money in China, but yeah, I don't think they're doing another Warcraft. Enter Netflix. Many of the filmmakers I've talked to over the past few years have worked with the streaming company Echo What Ehrlich wrote. Either Netflix made or bought their movie when no one else would, or Netflix gave them the kind of money and freedom that no one else would. Of course, this is a coin with two faces. For every being John Malkovich, there are many, many scripts that don't get made simply because they aren't very good. To release 80 movies in a single year, Netflix must roll the dice on quite a few of these screenplays that haven't been produced and films that haven't sold, if only because that's how you find 80 movies to release in 12 months. It isn't enough to assume that there are idiosyncratic gems lying around, misunderstood and waiting for the warm embrace, read lower financial obligations of a non-theatrical release. There may be a few of these, but there aren't 80. Of course, much of Netflix's ability to work like this is to do with its unique mandate. Other studios release the movies as individual titles that viewers then decide to either see or not see. Netflix releases its films as an aggregate, body of content that users choose to pay for in bulk. If you want to watch Stranger Things, you also get a replaceable you, whether you realise it or not, and that means each title carries less of a burden than a studio release might. It's good enough if the film is filling in a subject gap, or fleshing out a thin genre, or would work well when recommended after streaming a season of the OA. And with the imminent departure of more and more content to producers own blo blossoming services, like Disney's, this imperative is becoming more and more important. Soon, Netflix movies might be the only movies on Netflix. However, this future has its own effect. Netflix has become a player in the TV world by making series that are thought of as essential viewing. So far, it hasn't done this for movie fans. Not even close. No matter how much you liked Okja or Mudbound, neither is in the same league as Stranger Things in terms of its popular appeal. I still have to watch Okja. I know it's got the Asian guy from Walking Dead and it's made by the Korean dude who did all those really cool Korean movies. Oh boy, I think it was one of them. And that one where they're being chased around the city by a giant monster. And while the release of The Cloverfield Paradox turned out to be a marketing coup, there's only one Super Bowl a year. You can't exactly use it as the cornerstone of your release strategy. Instead, its film offerings tend towards one of two options. Digestible genre fare like sci-fi or romance, which is easy to recommend based on prior viewing habits, and lends itself to comprehensible loglines or solid actor-centric indies that lend Netflix some cachet and gravitar, but don't cost much and come with little risk. While it's difficult to speak in terms of what Netflix needs, Netflix needs whatever they are, have little in common with those of Warner Brothers or even Disney, the service could certainly use a home run film, not a good film or even a great film, a billion dollar film, a nuts and bolts blockbuster, a Black Panther or Get Out, the type of movie that the colloquial everyone sees. 
as much as they might argue that Bright is this kind of film, Bright doesn't feel like this kind of film. It's too divisive, too niche. Does Mute? It's an interesting question. Jones has talked about how it took him 16 years to get the movie made, a situation he attributes to studios' unwillingness to make original films with a budget anymore. In many ways, is the perfect kind of director for Netflix, a promising young talent who struggled with the studio system and is now looking for a chance to prove himself again. Patty Jenkins, Rianne Johnson and Ryan Coogler don't need Netflix. They're making the studios work for them. Netflix can't offer that kind of filmmaker the same deal it might a star showrunner like Ryan Murphy or Shonda Rhimes for many reasons. But it can certainly provide Jones with enough compensation to make up for the fact that his movie won't be in theatres. But Netflix is still rolling the dice on a script that sat on a shelf for a decade and a half and early indications that once again this strategy ignores a crucial feature of the film industry. By and large, however perfectly or imperfectly the good scripts tend to get made, the first round of critical notices have been even worse than Bright's. And barring a second wave of radically different opinions, that means yet another ambitious Netflix original has failed to receive the tenor of acclaim that bolts a movie into the stratosphere of cool or essential viewing. Essentially, on the same weekend that Paramount, a studio dinosaur, is releasing Alex Garland's Annihilation, which is drawing comparisons to Kubrick and Tarkovsky, this feels like an even greater miss. Annihilation is the kind of film Netflix wants to be releasing in the US, the kind of film that could boost its brand and make it a destination for movie buffs. But Netflix hasn't figured out how to land this sort of film exclusively yet. In this case, it had to settle for international distribution rights, which is how I saw it. At the moment, the company seems to have one technique for stealing a project the studios might want, short of finally conceding theatrical releases a la Amazon, throwing an insane amount of money at it. And even with tech funny money, that strategy doesn't exactly scale. So yeah, that was it. Bit of a read. Interesting. I wonder if their strategy has changed. I don't know if they're releasing 80 movies in 2019 or even next year. I'd like to see what they're doing going forward. I can click on Kevin Lincoln and uh, for next time pick one of his more recent articles. I mean, if I, it's not re more recent articles and then it seems to be that the most recent one is in November last year, at least on this website. So that's, uh, I might have been let go, poor guy. I don't mind, he's, he's got the gift of the gab. He knows how to make it readable, which is why I kept it up here for so long. So I'll dig one up from the past. But yeah, it's a pity to see there's nothing, at least from this year. I might have to look and see where he ended up, if it not on Vulture. Whether these are all as a free agent or not. I mean, how many staff writers are there left? I like to just latch on the one writer and follow that guy. Uh, most of my favourite ones are dead, unfortunately, so I might have to find some new ones. It's my current favourite Australian, Travis Johnson. I don't want to just make it a Travis Johnson podcast, because eventually he might want to do his own, even though I've offered... I think he probably wants to go with someone uh, a bit more corporate or set up with, you know, at least have a studio rather than a lounge room, which is fair enough. I don't want to just be like essentially the Travis Johnson reader. Um, I've got to mix it up a little bit. And that's why I'm going to move over to Better Call Saul and check out what's going on in the trivia. We're going to just go to the one for the entire show. I know this is on, a, on like one specific episode because you can go through them and there is a smattering of trivia to each individual episode, which is interesting, but it will take a long time to go through maybe two or three things in each episode. Like this one, for example, near the end of season four, 
is talking about in Kushata. See, I'd forgotten the name. I Who looks at the names of the episodes? But basically, it's right up near the end where you've got the first appearance of Lalo. And he is in, apparently, Breaking Bad. I've forgotten a lot of what happens in Breaking Bad. I saw it quite a few years ago. Cool when you get these intersections when characters finally pop up that play a bigger role in the later, what would you call it, chronologically later series. Because obviously it was shot years ago. And hopefully... Once Better Call Saul wraps, they're going to do another series which kind of take, picks up after Breaking Bad finished, or at least do a movie. There's rumours, fingers crossed, because it is really some of the best TV out there. It's just stuff like the black and yellow shirt that Kai, one of the guys they're using to build a meth lab, is wearing at the strip club, is the jersey of German football club Borussia Dortmund. See, that's the very definition of pointless trivia. But yeah, I do want to go to the actual main page for the show and see how much trivia there is there. See, we're at 39 minutes. So yeah, this will be the last one. I'll leave Narcos till next time. See, gotta keep it teasing, Kim, coming back for more. That's that's what it's all about. So, the salon where the temporary office of Jimmy is the one that he offers to sell to Jesse for money laundering in Breaking Bad. Oh, okay. See, lots of stuff like that I forget. It's where he's like, for most of, well, all the way up to the end of season four, he's living in the back of this bloody, it's like a nail salon. It's pretty, pathetic like that's he's he's the underdog of all time he's the most under underdog ever the series takes place in 2002 six years before the opening of breaking bad seven years before saul's first appearance it's a pseudonym that was picked because it sounded jewish and sounds like it's all good man it's all good which is how he ends the fourth season warning shit tons of spoilers in here better fucking watch it this is more like adding some crumbs after you've seen the show and you're desperate for more rather than review it scored the highest debut rating in cable history with 7 million viewers for its first episode Fear the Walking Dead surpassed that record with 10 million in its first episode still something to be proud of record breaking stuff at the time this is shot in 4k digital while Breaking Bad was 35mm film so you know you've got to upgrade fair enough it looks fine to me Vince Gilligan revealed on an interview that his original plan was to shape the show in season 1 eventually step out and let Peter Gould run the series but making the season was so fulfilling that he changed his mind and decided to also run it on an everyday basis why not this is the man you want behind the tiller Jeremy Shamos and Julie Ann Emery who play the Kettlemans were given freedom to improvise because the producers like their dynamics so much I can't remember who the Kettlemans are if I click on maybe the Julie Ann Emery character yeah not ringing a bell let's try with the Jeremy Shamos character. Maybe they're in like the first season and I lose track. I think I know who they are. They're the ones that tried to rob. He's like, he tried to rob his own company. What do you call that? Embezzlement. Yeah. And then they went and lived in a tent. The nail salon where he keeps his office and later tries to sell to Jesse is located on Juan Tabo, the same street as Gail Batisha's apartment. The corner of Juan Tabo and Asina was also the spot where Saul's guy could pick you up for a new identity. Well, there you go. Someone knows that town really well. Aaron Tall announced having serious talks with Vince Gilligan for a possible guest appearance, but later said it was not going to happen. Oh, that sucks. It would have really thrown off. It would have just stole everything in that episode. That would have been like, what, what, what? In the fourth episode of the second season, the man to whom Mike, that's Jonathan Banks, approaches for guns is the same man who sells guns to Walter White in the second episode of the fourth season. Where Walter purchases the 38 snub nose for defense, he's worried about Gus Fring. He also appears in the flash forward in the first episode of the fifth season of Breaking Bad. All right, easy on all the this episode of that season stuff, please. Vince Gilligan admitted that the character of Chuck McGill and Howard Hamlin developed differently than initially planned. 
Chuck was going to be the wiser older brother who would provide Jimmy with advice, and Harold was going to be the nemesis and foil in Jimmy's life. However, after a few episodes, the actors, producers and writers all agree that the trajectory of the characters would work better if Chuck was the true nemesis in Jimmy's life, and Howard was the flawed, sympathetic friend who wanted to help Jimmy. Chuck was never going to be the bad guy, and Howard was always going to be the one to cause problems in Jimmy's life. What's wonderful is working with such a talented group of writers and actors who weren't afraid to change things and be flexible with trying out different scenarios. I think the way Chuck and Howard are developed fits much more with the theme of the show and offers so many more rewarding outcomes than our original vision. Fair enough. I mean, it's not like Howard was totally just a flawed, sympathetic friend. He was still a dick. I mean, if I, if it's who I think they're talking about and I Google him, he's like the boss of, yeah, I mean, he's a dick and he's a shitty lawyer, but he's a good salesman and he's totally out for himself. Everything he does is self-serving. There's very rarely a time when he does anything that's like not narcissistic. So I don't think it's like they made him that great. I mean, he's apparently helped. He paid for Jimmy's girlfriends. I, I should know her name by this point, but you know, he's helped out different people with scholarships and things like that. But it all just seems to be like she says it's for his own ego or somehow I was going to help him out in the long run. It was, so yeah, he's not like that much of a sympathetic character. But Howard's definitely uh, not anywhere near as much of a dick as Chuck. Chuck is a complete fucking monster, but for very believable reasons. So that's why it's so brilliant. For many extreme shots, like on the ground shooting straight up or from inside a coffee cup, a very compact Panasonic Lumix DMC GH4 camera is used. There you go, you can look that up. Saul's catchphrase, it's showtime folks, is a reference to all that jazz from 1979. Vince Gilligan said his enjoyment of creating the show has opened his mind to another spin-off set before or after Breaking Bad. Please, please just keep making them. If you take the first letters of each episode in season two and unscramble them, it spells Springs back. <laughs> Jesus, that's some serious detail. Vince Gilligan said the show would not go past six seasons as the timeline would eventually run into the Breaking Bad timeline. We have certain characters that need to be introduced and specific events that need to happen, but the writers have freedom to develop how we get there in the allotted time available. So, you know, you could drag it out and start getting into minute and make it last a few more than six seasons, but you'd have to really slow things down. Each episode in season one has a different opening sequence. Well, okay, that's, again, more attention to detail. Only shows like this have. In, similar, in smaller places like Saul's office that is about 64 square feet, Saul's car and the other Saul's small spaces, the red Dragon 4K digital camera is used. So lots of technical stuff in here. The yellow car Saul is driving is the sedan version of the Suzuki Cultus Crescent. It sounds like something that you would have in Grand Theft Auto, a Cultus Crescent. The car was known as the Suzuki Esteem in North America and Suzuki Bellino in Europe, Asia, and Australia. Yeah, not a great car, but it's perfect for Saul. According to Rhea Seahorn, her character Kim Wexler, that's her name, is from a small town near the Kansas-Nebraska border but she will not reveal which or where it is. The show plays games with names. Saul Goodman sounds Jewish, suggests it's all good man, and is an ironic biblical reference, where the anti-Christian Saul had a religious epiphany and became Paul. Here, saintly James becomes Saul the good man. Ermin Trout, in German, suggests honourable man trusts. He's, I guess, honourable in a way, as long as you don't cross him. Both Raymond Cruz, Tuco, and... Or Tucho? Jonathan Banks, Mike... From Breaking Bad and played a role in Gremlins movie. Tuco played the messenger in Gremlins 2 and Jonathan Banks played Deputy Brent in Gremlins. Wow, there you go. So Tuco, if I click on him, I thought that was the younger dude, but no, it's uh, Tuco Salamanca. He's the really off the wall crazy one. 
You don't see him as much in Better Call Saul, though. It's known that in Breaking Bad, Jimmy was first seen in eighth episode of season two. It's not a coincidence that Better Call Saul's first episode premiered on February the 8th. Christ, why do you need that kind of detail? No one's going to notice that except someone on the internet. During season three, Saul wears a Panavision hat. The commercials are all shot on videotape using a Sona Betacam SP. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the joke, isn't it? There's nothing like a real director. The Kia Soul can be seen driving on the street in Season 2, even though the Soul didn't come out until 2007. Season 2 is supposed to be taking place in 2003. See, I'm really mad at myself for not picking that up. That's the kind of detail that I would usually spot. Uh, like with Fargo that was set in the early 90s, there was a lot of cars running around uh, that were from much later. So, yeah, I'm going to have to go and find that, but all it says is Season 2. That's a lot of digging. I'll just take his word for it. Creator Vince Gilligan was debating whether to do a show about events surrounding Walter White's death or even a 30-minute comedy about the character Saul Goodman, but decided upon Better Call Saul. Thank God he did. Uh, Peter Gould, co-creator of the series, posted on his Twitter account relating to characters' costume colours, known as the fire and ice theory. Bad colours wear red and good characters wear blue. The shade indicates the severity. For example, when Tuco takes Jimmy and the two brothers into the desert to punish them for trying to hustle Tuco's grandmother. Oh right, that's yeah, he was right in the beginning there. Tuco is seen in a red shirt. Nacho talks him around and saves him from being killed. He's seen during a scene in a blue shirt. When Nacho comes to see Jimmy in his office to discuss ripping off the Kettleman's, he is in a red shirt for this scene. Interestingly, Jimmy's car has one red door. I wonder if that's a deliberate detail. I mean, they deliberately made the car look shitty, so why not? It's, he's certainly uh, not all good, no pun intended. The tequila that Kim and Jimmy are shooting while hustling the investor was the same tequila that Gus Fring used to poison the cartel in Breaking Bad. Saul Goodman visits his relocator, who can be seen creating a Nebraska driver's license. That's in uh, Season 5, Episode 15 in Breaking Bad. Later in that episode, Saul tells Walter, If I'm lucky, months from now, best case scenario, I'm managing a Cinnabon in Omaha. The flash-forward scenes depict Jimmy McGill giving his new life as Gene in Omaha, Nebraska, managing a Cinnabon. Until it all gets, he freaks out a bit when he gets a lift home from the hospital after passing out from stress, and the taxi driver has like a, the guy seems to recognize him and he freaks out. Jimmy McGill uses a key fob for his car, which looks suspiciously similar to the one used by Walter White to trigger the machine gun in Breaking Bad for Lena. In the last episode of the second season, when Mike was about to assassinate Don Hector Tio, he found a note in his car saying, Don't. This is a hint for the appearance of the drug lord, Fring. We all know that by now. This must have been written. Yeah, that's the thing. When you look at the main page, you're stuck with stuff from a long time ago, which gets dated. Okay, so that's Better Call Saul. I'm not going to go through every single episode. We'll just stick with the main stuff for now. And that's this podcast because, oh my God, is it even still recording? Because the screen score dead. That's never a good sign. We nearly had a bloody hour, so I'm sorry about that. Kind of got away from myself. Thanks for listening. If you're still here, and I hope you're still here next week when things will uh, hopefully have some more news on how my job's going. I hopefully still have it, and if not, hopefully I can still jump onto Cookers, which seems like a nice supportive place. Nothing that I got. It's just something in my heart that's sort of tugging me in that direction. But I've still got to give this my best. Meantime, yeah, we're going to have some fun watching the Avengers going to Iron Fest next week. Be able to tell you all about that. All right, but for now, have a solid week.